Welcome to Next Gen Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Diane Lebson, CEO and co-founder of Evergreen Philanthropic Solutions and author of the new book, For a Good Cause. Diane, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Steve. Nice to be here. Um, I'm excited to talk about the book and how you've structured it and your thinking behind that. But before we jump into some of those ideas, could you just uh, introduce a little bit more about your work? What is Evergreen Philanthropic Solutions and what do you do there? Absolutely. So Evergreen Philanthropic Solutions was a company that my husband and I founded to serve the nonprofit sector. And we, we founded this company after I had been in the sector for about 30 years Two of the best and most impactful jobs that I've had during my career were leading both the women's philanthropy programs at United Way and the American Red Cross. And both of those programs mobilized over 70,000 women and raised over $2 billion. So I took a lot of the lessons learned, best practices, to form this consultancy where we provide expertise to nonprofit organizations around revenue diversification, around strategic planning, around board development, and really in relationship uh, deepening and uh, fundraising. So there's a lot to do there. The world has got much need for what you're talking about, and there's Absolutely. many things to keep you busy. Uh, but you decided apparently that that wasn't enough and you should write a book too. How, how did you come to the conclusion you wanted to write down some of these learnings that you wanted to share with other people uh, rather than just continue to deliver it through your work? Absolutely. And that's a terrific question. So Steve, what I found was that throughout my time working in philanthropy and specifically with women philanthropists, the same questions kept on coming up over and over and over again. Questions like, how do I know if I am making the greatest impact that I could? Gee, I've just been asked to serve as the chair of the fundraising committee, and I hate asking people for money. Mm -hmm. How do I do this? Um, I've just been invited to serve on a board of directors. What are my roles and responsibilities? So women were asking all these questions over and over again and not getting satisfying answers. So I created for a good cause to answer those questions. So they've got one place to look to answer them. And this is really a jump start so they could jump into their service more quickly and be more effective more quickly. Right. And, you know, any book can cover some things, but of course it can't, you know, cover everything. So yes, a good beginning place maybe for people to think holistically about a lot of those issues. One of the things that really intrigued me about asking to have a conversation with you today was about this idea of um, women's philanthropic work and, their, and the research from the Women's Philanthropy Institute um, being slightly different and changing over time here. This expanded definition that it's not just, I wrote a check, I have done my bit, um, but rather that there is more to it. And you're seeing that differently for different people at different stages of their lives, but more particularly women are responding differently as you're seeing it. Uh, how did you begin to notice that? How did this research come to your attention? Where did that come from? So primarily with my work with both, starting off with United Way, where I led the Women's Leadership Council, now Women United, we had a very tight partnership with the Women's Philanthropy Institute in Indiana. 
And at that point, back in the 1990s, 2000, they were doing a lot of research to really quantify the amount of money and the amount of power that women were exerting in their leadership in their philanthropic decisions. <clears throat> that research has changed because what they started to find beyond the quantitative assessment is that when a woman gets involved, she brings her whole person to the, to the situation, to the cause. So for example, if a woman decides that she's going to join a giving circle or if she's going to join one of the peer groups, she not only writes a check, she wants to see firsthand what exactly that organization is doing with her investment. She might decide to invite her friends to learn a little bit more about that organization. She might decide to serve on an advisory council to learn more and to maybe make some decisions with regards to how that money is being invested. So typically what the Women's Philanthropy Institute has found is that when you engage a woman, you're not only securing her financial investment, you're bringing in the whole person because when women get involved, they bring their whole selves. Well, I, and I'm, I want to see if that's uh, something that's changing because charities are um, offering and welcoming that, or if it's something that has always been the case and it's just been not as obvious or visible. Because I think that uh, there's a constant challenge in talking to charities about how they engage donors of uh, some organizations feeling like, well, we, we know what we're doing. If you just give us the resources to get it done, we're going to be able to show you all these great results. Uh, we'll send you a report. Thanks. Um, rather than we need to be more uh, open to feedback, more open to engagement, maybe even changing how we do things based on how people are hearing about it and whatnot. And I, I think that that's a shift that maybe hasn't happened everywhere yet, but are you seeing it in more types of charities or more places? Or uh, is there, are there still some lag that are thinking more uh, along the lines of we're just trying to raise money and we're not as open to all these other ways to participate? I believe that it is, I would say it's more of a mindset rather okay. than size. So I think that those organizations that are led by executive directors and boards that are open-minded and have a great amount of self-awareness and humility to understand that they don't have all the answers, that in order to be the best that they can be, that they need ideas from the outside. So it's more of a mindset and um, the sense of a, an organization being a learning organization and being willing to do something with that information, do something with that feedback, once you get someone involved. Because if everything is locked down, pat, tied with a beautiful bow, there's really not a lot of place for women or any, you know, any philanthropist to get involved. So an organization really has to be willing to make that shift in order to engage someone authentically and for that someone to really see where she can make a difference. And I, I guess there's where I want to just poke a little bit more at that, because I don't know that I see that in all of those places that I'd like to yet. I, if, if you go to a charity's website, it's almost invariably easy to find a donate button, but to find the volunteer button, 
uh, if there is one, is another thing. Or to uh, you know think about how do I become engaged as a member of the board, or what if what advisory roles do you have? Um, those are not as easy to find in as many places as I would expect them to be. And I'm just mm-hmm. not sure. I mean, the mindset comes from somewhere. You said that that is a part of it, but uh, why some charities and not others? Are there are is there a larger shift that might be happening where others are just kind of coming on a little bit slower? How do you think we're making progress towards more charities thinking of these ideas? So it really happens at the retail level, and I would say very much in an old school way. And I think that many nonprofits are still trying to figure out how to bring that notion to scale. So a lot of times these conversations will happen with high net worth individuals, people who are making significant investments, because they need to have nonprofits need to have one-on-one conversations to get at that level of depth to really understand. And to be completely honest, there has to be a a return on investment because if every single person with a great idea, just kind of, you know, three ideas at a nonprofit and there was no sort of return to the organization, that organization really needs to be circumspect about what it's doing with it. So really what this is requiring is the nonprofit organization, the leaders to really speak to individuals, donors, board members, other stakeholders, one-on-one to get to that. So you may not necessarily see that, you know, donate now, or I mean, you you might not see that volunteer now Mm -hmm. button on the website or, you know, click here to submit your comment. But if you're really passionate about an idea or a cause, request a meeting with an executive director, talk to somebody who's involved with that. And if an organization has got the capacity and the mindset to do that, go down that route, but it's not, it's less of a technology fix and more of the old school. We need to have conversations back like we did before the internet was a thing. Right. No, I agree that I don't think it's so much, you know, did somebody think technologically to make that available? It is a cultural thing of, are we really open to fully embracing all the parts of giving that you talk about in your book that, uh, you know, one way is certainly financial, um, but there's other ways of giving in terms of time and expertise and networks and all sorts of other things. And I don't know that every charity out there is doing the best job of being open and welcoming to those ideas yet, but that starts to flip more towards this idea that you're presenting in the book of you as an individual, if you're reading this, um, how might you be engaging in things? And one of them is, you know, finding uh, an organization that is ready for that kind of work and whatnot. And uh, one of your chapters, I I love the title is uh, falling in love is not enough. Uh, I think that's kind of what I'm getting at here is um, talk a little bit more about that part of uh, engaging with a mission and a charity that falling in love with them might not be the only thing that's important. Absolutely. Well, I'll share a personal story of heartbreak um, because falling in love is definitely not enough. So many times people get approached by different causes and it sounds great. And causes that are near and dear to my heart are largely around women's issues, international human rights issues, et cetera. And sometimes uh, philanthropists, well-meaning, well-intentioned philanthropists, um, go with their heart rather than uh, doing due diligence. And I was working with one organization that I 
absolutely fell in love with their mission. It energized me. And every time I talked to any anyone about that organization, I got the sparkle in my eyes. I just was very excited. I invited everybody to get, get involved. The problem was that I really hadn't done my due diligence. I hadn't looked at their Form 990s that are available on GuideStar. I hadn't looked at their annual report. I hadn't sat down and had a conversation with the executive director about what makes them tick, how long has the organization been at this, what are their strengths, weaknesses, challenges, and all of that. I just fell in love with what I thought that they were doing. And unfortunately, what happened was that some challenges arose that could have been easily identified had I just done my homework. So lesson out, you know, that I want to share with folks is that it's great to fall in love with the cost because it'll certainly put that sparkle in your eye, but you need to really make sure that you know what you're getting into, that the organization is being well-managed, that its values are aligned with your values, and that you can see where this organization is going, the direction it's going, and that you're on board with it. And understanding, I think, what's important to you as outcomes is a really um, critical piece of this, because you talk about impact as uh, a a thing that may really be a very important driver where you choose to give your time. Uh, And that's a um, thing that I think is important for people to understand what's your definition of that, because, uh, you know, I often joke around here about uh, um, our fall giving day in Minnesota is called Give to the Max Day. And I said, you know, if you can't raise money for uh, kids and dogs, on Give to the Max Day, you're doing something wrong, right? Because it's it's not a research-driven thinking, you know, considering challenge moment. It really is. Here's a cute picture of a dog, about 25 bucks. And people just go, you know, that's what this day is, is we're sharing all things that are really important. Um, but we're not necessarily, I think, making that strategic decision about where am I really going to land? You know, I'm spreading a little bit of money around a few organizations that matter to me. Um, but And that's okay. But I think it's interesting in the context of your book, as you're organizing things to think about um, it, how are you going to choose to participate in this in fairly big conversation um, in terms of what is impact to you. So how do you um, think about that particular part of your um, work here in, in terms of working with individuals that think about impact? Sure. And I want to answer that question looking at through the gendered lens of power. Mm. When we think about what a lot of people do, not, I would say, a strategic philanthropist who has a philanthropic plan that they execute with a financial advisor, but just regular Jills and Joes like you and me, Steve. Mm -hmm. Somebody asks us, they put a picture of a dog on their Facebook page. We like that person. We send them the 25 bucks, right? Um, We get a number of people who do that. We are responding based on emotion and we are giving our power away at the end of the year when we need to collect up all our receipts to hand them over to our accountant. We've discovered that we've given couple thousand dollars away, $25 here, $25 there, $25 everywhere. And is that really fulfilling? Is that really making an impact? Sure, we give a little bit to different places. Is that really making a difference? So a number of conversations that I've had with um, female philanthropists in particular is understanding the power 
of what you can do. And rather than diffusing your power by giving a little here, a little there, a little everywhere is thinking about what really means something to you and focusing your financial giving to maybe one or two causes. In so doing, you may end up finding that you are now a major donor to a particular organization. You might come into deeper relationship with that organization as a major donor and have more of a greater impact as opposed to your giving a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit everywhere. That's interesting to me to think about that power lens. You think that that's a, a different experience um, more specifically for women to shift to that lens or they already have that lens? I think that they are starting to shift through that and through the research that we're finding through the Women's Philanthropy Institute, through women like Kathleen Lear, who's written a book um, on gender matters. It's a matter of women recognizing that they do have that power. I want to share a story of a woman who I was working with. Um, in addition to doing work with nonprofit organizations, I also advise philanthropists on how they might consider their philanthropic planning. And it was really interesting that this one person I was working with had deferred all of her giving to, through planned gifts. And she's like, I just don't know what I can possibly do. You know, I just want to make sure I've got enough money right here, right now uh, for my living expenses. And I'm like, well, what happens if you were to maybe change it a little bit and actually start to enjoy your giving now? You don't have to give it all away now, but start giving it in big, you know, in ways. And she felt powerful in doing that. So I think it's the more that people are sharing stories about how they are able to make a difference and people recognizing that they don't have to defer that impact until a day when they're going to have plenty of money in the bank, mm -hmm. they'll feel more powerful. But it is, it is starting to happen. It's more and more women sharing their stories that's making a difference. So do you think there's a, a gendered experience difference too when it comes to then saying no, uh, that I, I think you know is a necessary part of uh, anybody in the philanthropic sector, uh, folks are gonna ask you over and over and over again to give. And you know if it's just an email, it's very easy to delete. But if it's a, a friend in a, um, a, a more specific situation, uh, sometimes that feels harder to say no. Do you think there's a, a different experience for women in situations like that versus uh, people who don't feel that same uh, connection? I think that there could be, because I think that for a lot of women, because we, because women tend to give out of empathy, out of empathy for others, they don't want to disappoint. They don't want to let their friends down. So it is hard to say no, but I have to say, I've got a friend who is just so duffed when it comes to saying no and her intentionality around philanthropic giving. So like all of us, she gets all of these requests for donations throughout the year. She graciously acknowledges it when it comes in and then just affirms that, hey, she's got a philanthropic plan. She looks at all the requests that come in through the year and she assesses where those requests fit in with her overall giving. So I think that there is a gracious way to do that. And particularly if donors explain why their no is a no, it'll help the nonprofit organization and it'll help them as well. Because a lot of times those of us who are professional fundraisers know that 
when we get a no, it's not a firm no. It might be no, not mm-hmm. now. No, not for this reason. No, for that reason. So we're going to come at these people in any way that we possibly can. But if a philanthropist is very clear about why their no is a no, we can work with that. Yeah, I think uh, it is something that that comes up a lot when I talk with charities as well, where there's uh, this feeling of, well, we just got to explain to people why we're the absolute best charity in the whole world and why we're the most important thing ever. And then everyone will give all the time. And the the reality being that more people that are starting to think about these issues that you're raising might come back again with that. Um, maybe you are a good fit, but I, I no longer decide these things off the cuff. I, I have decided that I'm going to be more planned about that. So if you'd like to send me information, I can hold on to it until I sit down and review all of them. Often for many people, that's towards the end of the year, if they're doing tax planning and all that kind of thing. But I think that's a very different thing from just, no, you know, no, I'm, I'm not interested in what you're doing. It's like, well, I might be, but it needs to be in context and it's not going to be right now. And, and that can be a, a very empowering thing to think about. Absolutely. And especially for nonprofits, I would think that it would behoove them to start thinking about their donors in this sort of way as well, because I would think that what the pandemic has even shown Mm -hmm. is that organizations that had deep relationships with their donors, who organizations that weren't just transacting their donors, Hey, we need money because we, you know, our staff have these challenges and whatnot. If donors feel like they're being transacted or if they feel like they're being treated as an ATM, they're going to turn in the other direction. Whereas if we give donors the space and grace to be intentional, again, we will get more of the donor and we'll get a stickier relationship with that donor. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's also, you know, if we are going to be doing some of those more casual giving opportunities where where somebody is fairly clearly just throwing 25 bucks in without a lot of investigation. Um, that To me, that's an invitation to try and have the conversation about um, a, a more meaningful gift and something that's invested. But it's also okay to give them that opportunity to say, you know what, my friend was throwing a birthday fundraiser. I don't really know much about your charity. I was just honoring my friend's wishes. Um, that's all. That was the entirety of my intent behind this. And let's not send every single email and every single postal mail and all the rest of it. If, if that donor really has committed elsewhere and has made other decisions and made a small gift for a reason, that's not about committing to your cause and being engaged as a volunteer and thinking about board leadership and um, acknowledging that that's a thing that happens and we should maybe, you know, let go of some of those people rather than trying to chase them for the next six years because they made one gift over a friend's birthday at some point. Absolutely. And it's funny because when I used to teach major gifts fundraising, when I was at United Way, I encouraged major gift officers to strive for relationships. Um, And actually I compared uh, fundraising to dating. Um, In many ways, what we're trying to do is uh, court a donor so that they want to marry us. We want that ultimate relationship with them. We recognize that they're going to be different people along other parts of the journey as well, but we want to give somebody that penultimate strong commitment that will last um, years and years and years. It'll be resilient and will be strong. So I think that we really need to shift our mindset. And part of it is just being honest. And I think that so many times donors may feel as though 
they just want to be nice. So they may not be honest and give some of these things, you know, some of these other examples or defenses as to why they're not giving. Whereas if they're just honest, it'll serve them well and it'll serve the nonprofit well. So this way they're not wasting their precious time and resources. Right. So as you, as a donor, and as you're urging in the book, you know, to really make those careful considerations, I think it also falls to charities and whatnot to help build that relationship and give people the chance to feed back to you about, you know, how engaged are you right now? Because I can look at metrics around newsletter uh, open rates and click-through rates and whatnot, and uh, sort of automatically see these folks are in. I send them a message, they open it, they've read it, they probably clicked through, they may even have forwarded the thing. They're, you know, people that are really committed to what I'm doing, and that's great. But a lot of those folks are like, nope, that, I don't think that message was ever opened. Uh, they, they saw it in their inbox, like, yeah, maybe someday I'll get to it. And then they scroll past and it never comes back up again. Um, and we, we get some of those hints, but it would be really good if it was more intentional with the nonprofit to say, what is this person's commitment to our work? How are we inviting them in and whatnot? So as you think about your book and, and these ideas that you're presenting to people about being more intentional around their own pieces of how they're engaging and who you pick and whatnot, um, how, how do you think uh, more charities could invite that kind of relationship with a donor? It's a great question. So nonprofit we collect nonprofits collect a lot of information on donors, like you talked about, you know, newsletter open rates, click-through rates, and all of that. Gathering this quantitative piece of the pie gives a clue as to where there might be suspects for giving, people who are demonstrating that they might be interested in your organization. That's one piece of the pie. Look at your quantifiable metrics just to see where people are. The second piece of that is to really dedicate time to getting to know your donors. And you talked earlier, Steve, about the example of nonprofits saying, hey, if we just communicate to enough people that we're the best organization that's out there, people will listen. What I would encourage nonprofits to do is actually just the opposite. Keep quiet for a minute schedule a meeting with a donor and ask donors some key questions. Ask them why are they, ask them to respond. Why are they supporting your organization? What's important to them? It takes a lot of that guesswork out. And again, you're able to deploy your efforts, your resources more strategically. But like I said, it really requires that nonprofits don't just spread this one message out at yeah. volume 10 really out loud. It's really taking a step back and listening to how the donors want to engage and how the donors want to be involved. So towards that end, you've got a fair amount of information in your book that is geared towards, and you start out uh, in a large part around this volunteer way of being engaged, not I've got lots of money and I'm writing the big check and therefore have some influence over here, but lots of ways that people can be engaged that way. As you thought about organizing the book, um, how, how did that part of it become the, the intro for what you wanted to say? That volunteerism is the gateway drug to philanthropy. Um, if we look at who are the most generous donors to nonprofits, it's typically people who've got a personal hands-on experience 
with the organization. And for many people, if you think about people's first experiences in philanthropy, if you go back to when you were little, it was volunteering and doing something. And so I think that for many people, you say the word philanthropy, they think Rockefeller, they think Mackenzie Scott, they think of Melinda Gates, they think of people who they may never be. That said, so many of us have got volunteerism as part of our initial formation experiences. And that is really the foundation for where I think a lot of people start, but also where I think nonprofits need to be more strategic rather than looking for, oh, who's got money? Look at who's really committed to your mission and start really building those relationships with those folks. So that's why I was really intentional about focusing in on volunteers as the first part of the book. Um, and you, as you go through several different things uh, to to think through that with your readers, uh, you also come come to a conclusion around this idea of burnout. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about there. And, and I've seen this happen in my experience where um, the charity that you're giving time to and energy may not be the one that goes. You know, you know what? This has been great. Thanks very much. You should probably take a break now. Uh, you know, they, they might well be going, Hey, if you're free next week, <laughs> we've got another thing that you can do. If you're, if you don't mind making some phone calls, we've got this. Uh, how do you talk about maintaining that passion and, um, helping the charity kind of find that balance with you? That's it's really done through having a frank and direct relationship with a staff partner, someone who can see firsthand you're pouring your blood, sweat, and tears into an organization, but yet recognizing and appreciating you as an individual, as a person who is not superhuman that will ultimately can break if pushed beyond the edge. And I think you raise a really interesting point because a lot of nonprofits will keep on asking, asking, asking until you say, ah, the bank's empty. I think the most humane and compassionate organizations are those that can recognize the humanity in their volunteers and the humanity and their philanthropists and recognize that they're real people. Again, they're not ATMs, they're not robots, they're real people who are bringing their whole selves to the organization. Yeah, I, I would hope that for all of us, that we would be able to stand up for ourselves and say, you know, I, I have an interest in doing this. But in most charities missions that I work with anyway, there, there's not a done point for the day where you're like, nope, we've finished everything. Go home and have a good rest right. and we'll start again tomorrow. There's always something more that could be done. And I think being able to understand your role in that work in such a way that uh, helps the charity uh, get that concept will allow you to stay engaged longer. Cause I do think that the, the real danger of burnout isn't that I'm just going to ease off the throttle a little bit, but rather I just can't do this at all uh, anymore. I have to quit completely because it has just drained me and taken so much out of me in other ways. You know, one way that you talk about in your book of trying to kind of um, think about that is, you know, can I get paid for this uh, instead of doing it all as a volunteer um, and beginning to think about if, if your passion really is in this particular mission, um, should it also become your vocation and not just your avocation? And, you know, um, that's a big leap for some people. Uh, how do you talk to folks about whether that's the right thing for them? 
I link it very much to tying value or assigning value and quantifying value in financial terms. I think that the nonprofit sector, and I'll even say particularly smaller volunteer-led organizations, have a tendency to think that human capital is limitless. They have a notion that people are just going to work hard. There's no off button. You're going to keep on doing it until it gets done. And that's not necessarily the best way to make sound strategic decisions about what an organization should be doing. Because if something's coming at you for free, you'd be kind of silly not to say no, to say, oh, I don't want that. Whereas if an organization is valuing that that, that effort or that particular resource, would they be willing to pay for it? Now, to be very clear, I'm not suggesting that, you know, people who come into the nonprofit sector are, are gonna become millionaires or that should be the aim. But rather what I'm suggesting is that many nonprofits start making decisions in a very business-like objective fashion, because I think that if they were and recognize the true value of resources, decisions might be made very differently. Do you have, I'm interested in that particular um, idea, that follow-up of, uh, because I I do think it's really challenging. Again, there's just never an end of work to do. So uh, I've got one organization I'm working with right now where I'm like, can we at least prioritize? (laughs) Because every time I talk with you, it's, this is the most important thing we're doing. And I'm like, well, that's not what we said three days ago. And we, we have to make some capacity decisions around this. And I don't know, as either a volunteer or as a staff member, how you um, work through that, or if it gets back to one of those original premises about you know falling in love with something, if this is just not the right fit for you, because that's not how you'd like to work, um, then maybe it's better to invest your time, energy, money, and all other things with a, a different organization that does more closely align with how you'd like to work. You know, if if maybe running off the cuff at everything is, is your jam and you want to do that, then maybe those organizations are the better fit. It may very well be. And that's why I think I like to bring it back to doing the due diligence as you're considering what is the right organization for you. One of the things that I've learned to do really through a series of accidents and mistakes that I've made is that I want to see the strategic plan of an organization before I make a commitment to it. Where do they envision themselves in three to five years? How are they assigning their resources to fulfill that goal? If I get involved as a board member, as a volunteer, as a donor, how are my efforts going to be melded with that overall to achieve your objective? So I want to see how I fit into that whole structure. And sometimes the actually the best time to ask for that is before you even get involved. So this way, you know what direction you're going on. I mean, a lot of folks like to have a map or like to know where they're going before they go on vacation, which you want to do the same thing with your philanthropic investments as well. So for uh, we're, we're starting to run a little bit low on time and we're not even you know through half the topics in the book, but I do want to touch on this idea of a different type of uh, commitment to a mission above the financial contribution, above the regular line volunteer, which is volunteering as a board member. Um, and I think that that's, uh, um, first of all, again, many charities are seeking that kind of thing, maybe not as effectively as they could be, maybe not as completely, but I do think that there's a lot that would like that level of help. 
Um, but uh, thinking about making that commitment, uh, in, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly how you phrase it in the book, something about uh, before you sit at the adults table, something like that, um, to really consider what that role means differently from how you give and what advice are you um, working through with people on that concept? With that, and I'll speak to this from both the person who may be the potential board candidate and then speak to it um, in terms of the nonprofit space. As a board member, you want to be very clear with the organization with regards to what their expectations are of you and what you are willing to give. And that means being very clear about financial commitment as well. I can't tell you how many nonprofit boards I've been asked to serve on where I've asked just a very basic question, what is the financial commitment? And they'll say, oh, we don't have one. For me, that is a huge mistake and a huge missed opportunity because research has shown over and over again that board members are the most generous people to their nonprofit organizations that they support. So I think that really board candidates are, as they're looking for these opportunities, need to be very clear about what their experience is going to be, what their expectations are, and that how that fits into the overall objective. Now, looking at that from the nonprofit perspective, as they're going out and recruiting, I think a lot of nonprofits will say, well, we need to have a lawyer because just in case right. we've got legal issues, we can get free legal help. We need to have an accountant. So this way we've got you know, somebody who to do our books. I think that that's also a faulty premise as well. I think that nonprofits really need to look at expanding the types of people who are involved with the organization. And some of that might be related to diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. But I would think that even diversity from the sense of um, due diligence and fiduciary responsibility, you don't want people of all of the same mindset making a decision, making groupthink decisions on behalf of the organization. You want the most critical people looking at your plans, looking at your finances, poking holes in that, because you want that to happen internally. You want the people who are closest to your board members doing that as to somebody from the outside doing it. So like I said, from the individual board you know, member perspective, make sure that your expectations are aligned and make sure that there is a give or get policy that's been articulated and you are comfortable with that. And then from the nonprofit board, make sure that you're recruiting people who are not going to fit into groupthink or a homogenous culture on your board. Yeah, it's, it's a different space to be in for sure. Uh, ahead of us starting this recording, we were just talking about board service that I was engaged in last year and it can shift so dramatically where you think, you know, we've got a plan, here's how it's going to go. And then the world throws you a curveball. And as that person who has accepted that responsibility of being on that board, uh, I mean, you've sometimes are, are ending up having to deal with something that you maybe didn't think of technically could you resign? Sure. But if you took on this commitment, I think it's largely around being able to help organizations ride through that as a part of your philanthropic effort and giving and whatnot. So those are important things to think about as you consider whether that's the right level of engagement, because I do think that that can shift around a little bit. 
Um, but lastly, and before we lose all of our time, you, you do talk about the option of, you know, you've fallen in love with somebody else's mission. If you've thought about staff roles, you've thought about these things. If there isn't something that's the right fit out there and you are that philanthropist, maybe it's time to help see if a new organization is the right solution instead of working with an existing mission. Um, I, I, I personally a little um, uh, hedgy on the idea of should everybody start their own you know, charity on anything, but what's your take on when's the right time to think about, you know, maybe the way that this gets done is a new group. I think it happens after you have done some really thorough due diligence to understand who's already operating in this space where you are interested and passionate and how can you make a differentiated impact When I was with United Way, I worked with a lot of football players who wanted to create a foundation to help kids. This one wanted to help create a foundation to help kids. This one wanted to create a foundation to help kids. Mm -hmm. And it's really diffusing power. So the most important thing that anyone, before they embark on any sort of, I'm going to do this by myself, is really understanding who the players are making sure that what you have to offer is so different from anything else that's out there and that you have enough passion that's going to last you when things get really hard, when things get very boring, when things get very mundane, after you've spent hour after hour after hour working through your IRS 501c3 accreditation paperwork, is your passion still going to be there? And I think that that diligence part of, you know, is somebody, and I, I think your example of, you know, I, I want an organization that helps kids. There's probably an organization already with that mission statement to help kids in your community. Um, is it that you really can't find a place with them for some legitimately good reasons? Uh, like they, they've got a, a way of approaching things that's just very different. There isn't anybody that's aligned with how we think we can make change in the world and therefore you know, maybe a new group is the right thing versus I just want to do it myself. Um, and I'm like, well, maybe, um, you know, you, you should take that moment and, and take a look at the landscape and say, are we diffusing donor attention and community resources and all the rest of it uh, when we really could swallow a little pride and find ways to work together on something that would be closer um, there are, of course, new things that come up in communities, new needs, new ideas uh, that aren't being served anywhere else. And, and in those cases, it certainly makes more sense to, to think about that. But I do think it's important as you're weighing all of these issues that are raised in your book to always keep in mind, uh, you know, what is the impact of one more charity joining the, the crowded landscape if there is a crowded landscape where you are? Absolutely. And this is actually where honesty is really important in a sense of self-awareness because to be completely honest, a lot of people who are creating their own charities have a lot of ego. And if they want, or they want, they're seeking power, they're seeking something other than what is the core of the mission. And that's totally legit and totally okay. We are all humans with different motivations. The truth is that if you want to satisfy that particular motivation, you can accomplish that through a, the current framework of what's being done in that space without creating another organization. You could serve on another existing nonprofit's board. You can make a significant donation and have a fund named after you. You can satisfy those itches in so many ways. You just don't have to create just because you're another person with, a, with another idea. Right. 
So we, we are really running low on time. Uh, are there areas about your work, your book that you wanted to make sure we had a chance to touch on before we are completely <laughs> done for the day? Well, thanks for asking, Steve. No, I think that the bottom line is this, that we have so much power when it comes to our philanthropic engagement. The key element of that is just making sure that we're being intentional and strategic to make the greatest impact possible. Well, uh, a good thought to end on. So I just will thank you again that uh, Diane Lebson is the CEO and co-founder of Evergreen Philanthropic Solutions. And of course, author of the new book that we've been talking about for a good cause. Uh, I assume people can find the book where books are sold or do you have somewhere in particular you recommend people look for it? Just put my name in Amazon and you'll find me there. (laughs) There you go. Diane, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Steve.